0: Ashton here with Love, Life and Disability. Hi, and welcome back to another episode of Love, Life and Disability. And today I'm joined by Chris. So Chris has been working at the Media Trust and has a fantastic campaign which is called Reframing Disability. And this project was focusing on news and he does training and work across the whole of the industry to try and increase disabled people's representation. And it's a huge passion for Chris and he's here today to tell us a little bit more. How are you doing, Chris?
1: Good, thank you. How are you?
0: I'm very well. I'm very well. I'm really excited um, to have you on today because obviously I can't really talk too much about my day job in general um, when I do my podcasting. But you know, we've connected before um, about reframing and disability. And I was wondering if you can tell our viewers and listeners a little bit more about um, what that project's about.
1: Absolutely. Yeah. So this project arose about a year ago um, now. um, And I started working for Media Trust uh, at the start of March 2020. Um, And so it's the project as it was originally intended, hasn't really panned out because of the pandemic, but we've been able to move a lot of stuff online um, and deliver it that way. Um, And basically the project, um, which was uh, sort of come up with before I started uh, at Media Trust was a project to try and increase um, the visibility of disabled people, originally focused just on BBC broadcast news. So uh, TV and radio news just within the BBC. Um, And it's now sort of taken on some legs of its own and we've started doing work across casting and comedy and drama and entertainment and radio and so many different areas which is really amazing uh, and also working with partners outside the bbc as well um and basically the project aims is is trying to combat the fact that when we see disabled people we first of all it's trying to combat that we very rarely see disabled people in our broadcasting at all um but when we do it's usually that they're talking about disability um and i think it gives the impression to the public that um disabled people might the disabled disabled people are a not very productive and not very successful but those who are it's just by being experts in their own Lived experience, um, rather than all the huge numbers of disabled people who are experts and successful in a huge range of industries, um, and that's all being missed. And I think um, the quote that the the statistic that really shocks me all the time was a piece of Scope research, um, which found that one in three people think in Britain think that disabled people are less productive than non-disabled people, and I've well, I think I think um, media and broadcast has a big role to play in that. I think that's where, you know, we all, not through any fault of our own, but we all live in our in our sort of small area we don't we don't all know all 65 million British people and so the people that we know are never going to be fully representative of society and that's inevitable but one of the ways in which we find out about the diversity of society and diversity of the people we don't know and don't meet is through tv um, and radio both uh, entertainment and um, news documentaries so on Um, so it's really really important that when we are and particularly for the BBC as a public service broadcaster but also for any broadcaster that we're showing the world and the country as it really is and not just um not just a particular subsection of it because when you do only show that subsection or you only show marginalized people in a certain light or in a certain context then that's going to lead to the public seeing those groups as being as only ever existing within that context
0: is it's like with like perception as well and we do need more people on on screen and even behind the camera and things that I've always said is, especially within production teams, if your cast, if your in-house is purely white, middle-class, maybe males or females, and you're not representative of LGBTQ, um, BAME and disability, you're not gonna be able to get that into your output and get that into your content because a lot of the time people hire within their own skin. A lot of the time they only go to the stories and the interests that they know. So if you're not representative, like 50-50 and so forth, and what external is, then how can things be improved?
1: Absolutely. I totally agree. And I think there's um, there are huge numbers of people who would like to work in TV, media, the arts, uh, the creative sectors very broadly, who feel unable to, or don't know where to begin and feel that, um, it's not an industry that would welcome them. Um, And I think sometimes there's truth in that, but a lot of the time it's a perception, which actually, once they start getting into it, they realize, okay, I actually am welcome here. But it's that first barrier of even believing that this is a space in which you are welcome and which you belong, which is the biggest challenge. I'm really, really delighted to see the number of broadcasters, um, BBC, ITV, Channel 4, and others who are now running Um, training schemes in production and tech. And so are many other areas. I think that having those schemes are really, really important for those who are, who don't have connections and who can't just get into the industry by knowing a guy or by going to the right um, bar or, you know, restaurant or whatever and meeting the right people. Um, And that can be, um, as you said, sort of um, working class people, it can be disabled people, it can be women, it can be people of colour, but it can also be just people who didn't grow up with that, with those connections, people who didn't grow up with that confidence, maybe people who were quite shy in school even. And so never felt that they were, you know, they didn't come out of their shell until later, by which time they felt like it was too late to get into this sort of more extroverted industry, I guess. Um, And so I think it's, those schemes are really, really important in terms of building that, um, building that diversity. But I also worry that by only having schemes for entry level, you're also missing out on a huge amount of talent of people who've got further down the career path, have a lot of transferable skills, um, but can't necessarily make that move without going right back to the beginning of their of their career ladder. Um, and I think a lot of industries, but, but Broadcast is one of them, is one which is not always great at recognising those transferable skills.
0: I totally agree. It's, so a lot of the time I've always been brought up within where I work to be told, mm. oh, it's kind of like career jungle gym. So sometimes yeah. you want to go up, you've got to go sideways and then mm. you've got to go up, then maybe drop back down, go a little bit sideways, go back up. A lot of the time it's not just bum 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 and you keep going up the ladder. It's it's really not like that. But having said that, no roads literally in the world are just straight. They're all a bit bum, no. a little bit diversioned. And there's multiple ways, like let's use the analogy of making four, you know, you could be one plus three plus four. Four plus zero three plus one there's so many ways to get to that one place and sometimes like with the transferable skills some people will recognize it but not everyone and again it's those people that maybe have come a little bit left field into the industries that get it they understand it where other people may look at a cv and be like oh no how possibly could you be an assistant producer You haven't even been a researcher But if they've not took into account, the person might have done business analysis and that's researching into content, that's researching into products and working with stakeholders and they could bring a vast amount of stuff into the actual piece. The same with project and product management. It's why can't you switch between both fields? Because in order to have a project, you need the product. So then you're working with that anyway. And... Yeah, transferable skills is really important. I always recommend doing squat analysis, like looking at your strengths, your weaknesses, your opportunities, and, you know, what what are your threats so then you know what you've got to deliver on. And with women, you know, d- d- hopefully this won't come across sexist, but a lot of guys will look at, like, a CV and go, yeah, I can do that, I can do that, and that's like that. Yeah, I'm applying. Where a woman <laughs> can't it, Oh, I can't do that, I can't apply. One thing, they can't do it, they will not apply it. And I don't know why our brains are kind of like that as women. We, we just look at what we can't do as opposed to what we can. And I think we need to take a leaf out of the guys' books and start applying for things.
1: Absolutely, and I think even, even I've done a lot of recruitment and um, I obviously work in charity, which is a very women-dominated industry. Um, So I've got a lot of um, female colleagues, um, including at very senior levels, which I know is not often the experience for a lot of um, men like me sort of at relatively junior level entering um, an industry and that's given me a sort of real, uh, just so many female role models, uh, I guess. Um, But one thing I constantly notice is that men when applying for jobs uh, and when interviewing for jobs will constantly say, I did this, I made this, this happen, I led on this. Whereas women will say, I was part of this. I was on the team that delivered this and not take ownership, even if they've actually done most of the legwork and most of the strategy for it, they'll still make it a collaborative thing and, te- and they'll sort of, yeah, they won't have the full agency of the work that they did. Whereas men, even if they were like making the coffee for a meeting, they'll be like, oh yeah, I delivered this. And I think that's also something I've learned to see through, but often isn't something. And it means that women often come across worse in interviews when actually they might be the better candidate
0: totally agree it's like words as well one of my friends applied for a job and she didn't get the job because she didn't show leadership um within her answers so instead of saying I will it's I would like um, mm. I would like to do this and I would like to do that and the other candidate that got it was like well I will be doing this and I would I will be doing that it's not it where she was like obviously I don't I don't know what I can do once I get a job you know it's was trying to go this is what i would like to do but where he was like well no i'm gonna do it like this is you want leadership this is what you're going to get and based on how they both scripted their words i will and i would um the other person got the job
1: which is which is also i find slightly depressing because someone saying someone who's never worked for this company saying i will do this that would put me off i think because that's saying you know you're saying i i will come in and it doesn't matter what's already happening it doesn't matter what other teams are working on i'm just going to come and bulldoze through that and set my own agenda i'd much rather have someone collaborative um but i think that so often gets gets missed um, and as I, as i say it's not it's not a, a 100% correlation but there is definitely a correlation between being from marginalized groups um and having that kind of more collaborative and more sort of um less boastful approach i think
0: So with the reframing of disability, um, as a lot of people may know at the moment, you know, you've got the training courses out there. How can other groups um, apply for this? And as we know, ITV, BBC are all signed up to this. Can other businesses um, which are not in the media industry also sign up to these filter courses and have these delivered?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So Media Trust and myself will be running these training sessions for um, really anyone in the media industry that's interested. And in, and they're quite tailored. Um, as I mentioned before, one thing we found really interesting is that we made this training entirely for journalists and uh, news producers. Um, and so every example we gave was related to journalism um, and inviting guests on for broadcast um interviews um and yet we had so many people coming from you know working on reality shows for bbc3 who still found it relevant um and that's been really interesting discovery for me to see how much crossover there is and so we've really expanded it beyond that um and and really we can make it relevant for any organization Um, who'd benefit from it. So yeah, absolutely get in touch with, uh, with Media Trust. Um, I can plug, plug our email at the end, (laughs) um, to get in touch and, and, and work out how we can, uh, deliver training with you.
0: And what has been your experience uh, with disability?
1: Um, so I'm autistic. I was diagnosed when I was 14. Um, so not too, not too early, not too late. Um, and, um, I, but i only really started to identify with disability um and as being disabled when i was at university which was my first time living away from home um i was very young when i started university because i was very young for my school year so i i started a, a month after i turned 18 and just felt completely overwhelmed um and sort of like i'd been thrown in this um huge pond as this tiny fish and had you know really struggled to make friends and and you know i I did have friends but i really struggled to do things like go and eat in the sort of college canteen um and be with surrounded by all these people and all this noise um and so my, my pretty much my whole career has been focused on disability um i always wanted to work and i Relating back to what we were talking about before, my career's also been quite an interesting one because I was one of those people who thought I did acting at university. I've done stand-up comedy since then um, and writing and journalism and so on. And I never felt like, although that was a thing I did as a sort of uh, casual hobby at university. I never felt like that was an industry I was welcome in, um, and I always thought I wanted to go into the charity world. And I've always worked. Yeah, I've worked for an equality charity, and then moving into an autism charity, and now I'm obviously working for a for, in the broadcast industry, um, but focused on disability across the piece. Um, and that's been a real joy for me. To even though it's not been, as you said before, it's not been a straight line. It's been quite a sort of. Um, uh, sort of wiggle around, but to now be working in broadcasting in media, um, not in a production role, but in this sort of creative diversity role has been so amazing and and really enjoyable for me.
0: When you got your diagnosis at 14, do you feel like that was a weight lifted off your shoulders? Did you feel something, you had something, but you wasn't quite too sure? How how did the diagnosis help you at that age? I,
1: again, it was a very delayed reaction. Like At the time, I just was like, I don't really... I don't really get this and also I didn't really understand at that time I was like I got this like I remember getting this newsletter from like my local town's disability charity or disability organization within the council and being so confused because I was like I'm autistic I'm not disabled because I just didn't you know at that time I just thought disability meant physical disabilities I had no concept that this would count within disability and I just had no I just you know no real concept of it but i was because i had that diagnosis i received counseling from the age of 16 um which was just like a complete lifesaver i I saw them regularly from 16 up to about 22 um, and they were just completely essential for me to be able to articulate how I was feeling and and start to put it into words and as you say over time it wasn't a rapid thing but over time it was like a weight was lifting off my shoulders as I started to understand all these weird all this feeling of isolation and frustration and not understanding what's going on and just feeling quite lonely um started to make sense a little bit and I also started to learn what was important to me and and how And how to make those friendships as well but not just how to make friendships but also what kind of people i wanted to be friends with you know at school i always was so desperate to be in like the in with the cool kids you know um and i was always like in with the nerds (laughs) um and that was my group and i was so desperate to be like in with the cool kids And, and then i which is obviously a very teenage thing and then i realized well you know friends are really important to me i'm an extroverted person um i do need to spend a lot of time with others but I'm going to spend time with people like that really make me happy um, and that really appreciate me for me. And I appreciate them for them. Um, so I'm, you know, not everybody um, always necessarily values diagnosis, but for me, it was really important, but it wasn't, as I say, it wasn't a sort of light switch going off.
0: And in terms of the, career at the moment honestly working at the media and you working within broadcast you've got the experience of doing the stand-up and stuff do you do you want to be working at like itv channel four is that the ultimate aim or what would you say the aim is for yourself at the moment with your career which direction
1: yeah i definitely want to move i i would definitely i love working for my organization and media trust is such a unique charity um we are we are very charity, but we're also very media and that's quite unusual for charities. You know, they're usually very separate to the industries they work with, whereas we are really implanted um, within that industry. But I, yeah, my, I I think I found my, my area, which is wanting to work in broadcast and working on that diversity um, and working on, uh, that sort of yeah the create it's, it's it's the creative side of diversity i'm not i don't claim by any stretch of the imagination to be any good at the sort of hr and workforce side of diversity but it's that creative diversity and on-screen diversity that i love but one thing this pandemics also taught me is that um that creative outlet that i've always had and doing stand-up um writing and acting is something i really want really need in my life and has been completely missing for the last year um so i also think that you know, by work, although I wouldn't be working in the, you know, as a on-screen talent being in this industry gives me the confidence to go out on us on you know even if it's just a pub basement and doing some more stand up uh, is 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 back and it sort of reignited that spark which is which is a really good feeling um because i think you know some people and i think it's true for a lot of people in broadcast even those who don't have um creative roles there is that desire and that spark to do something creative um and i really don't want to lose that um because of the pandemic
0: I totally represent with that, especially when mm. I was more admin roles. I was always mm. trying to work out ways. How can I be creative? Like telling me to raise purchase orders is not very creative. Yeah. <laughs> I'm going to make a Excel document, which is going to have pivot charts. and trying to get more creative with the admin side of things and then how I'd present my information because I just needed to be creative so when I got the chance to organize, I don't know, things like away days or different events or pitch ideas, I then did that. But a lot of my stuff, similar to the podcasting and the YouTubing, I do all on top of the day jobs. So I keep yep. that creative kick, which is so, so important. But working with people like um, Dank, the Disability Arts Network community, mm. across that, they're posting out jobs all the time, looking for people. From comedians, writers, artists, actors, and they're a fantastic group on Twitter and also on an email for people to mm. follow. It who are disabled in that creative industry, wanting to take that step further?
1: Yeah, I think uh, that's that's really interesting and useful for me. And um, thank you for sharing that. I yeah, and I completely agree about the sort of the sort of admin and creative um, sort of. Uh, competition i guess that there is sometimes um and i you know it's often a shock particularly for people who come into the industry from university because when you're at university you sort of get to pretend um that you're a ceo or really high up you know you get involved in a drama production and you are the director or the producer straight away then you graduate from university and even if you go straight into the industry you're probably doing a job like a runner or a researcher or a, a you know a, a script associate where your most of your tasks will be um printing photocopying making coffee you know you're not going to be doing really creative tasks um and and that's you know that's how you get your experience so you can work your way up into getting those more creative opportunities but i think it's really important to have both actually and i some you know sometimes when i'm really involved in something really creative and strategic at work i actually quite like the opportunity to go and do something really boring and manual (laughs) um because it sort of gives you a bit of a break as well do
0: you find Sometimes your head might come up with an idea and you're like, oh, I really want to do that. And then boom, something else comes in and it's just trying to like process everything. And it's like, well, what can I do? I want to do this, I want to
1: do that. I want to do everything. 100%. And something I always have a problem with, especially when I'm trying to write stand-up, is that I'll come up with ideas in like the shower or while having a swim and then I'll just never write them down. And the next day I'll be like, what did I think of? That was really funny. Um, but just can't at all remember what I've done. So I think, I think yeah, trying to actually turn some you know, ideas and things that just pop into my head into things that can actually work is always a challenge.
0: I have notebooks next to my bed and I always mm. talk to my phone. I best not say hello to him otherwise he'll wake up. <laughs> I'll write ideas down, but then sometimes like, I'm in sun at the moment, so I'm not really sleeping in that well, but I'm half half asleep, half awake and then I mm. and write something in the morning I'll go, I need to write that up and then I'm there looking at it going I haven't got a clue what I've wrote there. <laughs> at the time it's like really really good like i had one last night and i've had a look at my notes again this morning i'm kind of like nah.
1: what on earth did i just write <laughs> oh yeah no i can relate to that quite heavily
0: i was always looking to do something to stand up i'll put you in contact with one of my friends if you're not already aware of him he's called um adam he does a rush of laughter um, oh yeah, yeah yeah
1: i've heard of it but don't i haven't come into contact with them
0: i'm He's got a lot of different artists. I've worked with him quite a fair bit from an Edmund events business. Mm. He spoke about getting an artists. Um, he would always give me some artists to the events that I've been organising. And I'd go down and have a chat with the his talent. But I'd have, been it and have a book a in Manchester. So mm. come check out his talents see what he's got in his books. And we, was, we were always having chats about um, comedians, up and coming people, and amazing people. So, you know, always happy to try and
1: network. Oh, amazing. Thank you. Yeah, and I'm I'm actually a s sort of a mancunian myself as well.
0: I try to be funny, but I, I <laughs> I'm a piss out of myself. And <laughs> and, I, and I I think I do that to like comp- is it people say it's like to like compensate, like people instead of taking everything that we live with serious because it is serious what a lot of us you know can live with and how it can affect our lives. Is that you overcompensate things with comedy to try and like make it seem a little bit easier to live with?
1: Totally, yeah. And comedy is such a like a it's such a break from reality. That's why I've always loved it, either as a what someone watching or someone performing. Is that it's such a break from just like the world, <laughs> and especially at the moment, that's so important. Um, and I it's it's also quite interesting. I've often just like stand up is a very weird beast. Like there's some people who are incredibly funny day to day who just could not do stand up, And then there are people who aren't very, who are actually quite serious and stern in real life. And then they get on a stage and just make you, you know, howl with laughter. It's quite a, a weird sort of medium, really.
0: I've come across that as that same scenario. Like at work, there was this guy and he was funny, but more irritating. <laughs> anyway, he wanted to be a comedian and he went along, do you know, to one of those ones, it's going into me you get booted off.
1: Oh yeah, gong show, yeah.
0: And we were like yeah. oh. like it's like like he was in one of my jobs, he? and he's like, Yeah, come along, come along, yeah, I'm gonna be a comedian. And it would make everybody laugh in the office with everything that he came out with. But then when he went on stage, he tried to do one of those crowd pleasers, audience kind of like how we all doing. Oh see, you you are a bit bored, you're on your phone. Do you know what? you yeah. <laughs> I think to it. It
1: didn't even last 10 seconds, Yeah, <laughs> I've never understood that. I know people who love doing those gong shows and I just don't get it. There must be something masochistic about it. And I, again, I've always... Um, and I think partly it's it's being autistic. I've always benefited from like having some sort of structure. So I the first time I did stand-up was, I did, the first time I did stand-up was because a friend asked me to for his own show. Um, but then the first, the, when I started to do it properly, it was through Soho Theater, um, who have an amazing scheme called Soho Young Company, which is getting sort of just doing classes for, uh, they have classes for sort of people who've already started doing comedy, but they also have classes for complete beginners doing stand-up sketch, drag, uh, and so on. Um, and that was really helpful for me because if you told me just go to, you know, turn up in this pub basement and and do five minutes to a bunch of people you've never met, I would, like, that would have horrified me. There's no way I could have done that. Um, But once I'd had the opportunity to do it on, you know, through this course, preparing something for 10 weeks, getting feedback and then performing to a group of people who I knew were supportive, made it much easier to then make the jump into doing open mic. And what about acting? What's your
0: preference there within the acting or you still want to do
1: I re- yeah I really miss doing it and it's something I I did a lot at university and I was in a lot of different and I actually did a lot of um, new writing so like um, plays which other students had written would then be put on by the drama society and um, yeah I just I loved it it was always just such an and especially at university where like it was such a nice break from from study and getting to know you know people from different parts of the university and performing together and and it's something I really it's something I've not really done since uni and it's something I didn't really appreciate until the pandemic hit, you know, you take it for granted. And then once, once it's no longer an option, you realize how, how much you enjoy doing that stuff. Um, I couldn't, I couldn't do it professionally and I'm not, I'm not good enough to do it professionally. And I'm also, I don't have the patience and I really admire people who do, but doing, you know, the sort of, uh, community theater, I guess. And actually, you know, especially in London, there's loads of places that do really good community theater. So, that kind of thing, I'd, I'd really like to get back into. But who knows how much longer we're going to have to wait?
0: There was a lady on Twitter, um, Steph Lacey, who does quite a bit with mm. and Simon Naylor. And one of her lockdown projects, I thought it was pretty cool, she'd write stories for mm. the programme. So he would write in, so I wrote in, and basically said, I have a niece, She's four. She loves this. She loves that. She's got a brother called Thomas. This is how old Thomas is. And just like literally a few words, she went away, and then based off that, she would write a story. And it's then amazing. Send mm. it as story mm. and upload them to YouTube and give you the video. And she did that every single day for like the, pretty much the full length of lockdown number one. And other people wow. now they've decided to do is. You've got a bunch of writers, all of you will write your own play, then they'll get a bunch of actors, and you know where this is going. You'll <laughs> act that play and then they'll put them together, whether or not it's going to be a monologue piece or whether or not they'll be casting, whereby you're all going to be in the end of the video, but you'll say you're like, bum, 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 bum.
1: And do and it's a me- I just love doing new writing performance as well because it's your blank slate. Um, like it's you know if you're performing and especially like if you're doing Shakespeare or something which has already been done a billion times you sort of feel you feel pressure to 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 do do it differently and obviously when it's been done that many times there's no such thing as new like it's all been done whereas when you're doing something new you can sort of take the character um and really make it your own um and so I really enjoy uh, yeah I really love doing that and I think that's a really I think it's really enjoyable for actors as well. It's ju- its more—it's more creative than than just performing a character that's been done to death already.
0: No, I totally agree, I'll, I'll send you mm. their details in their Twitter. Mm. And check them out and. Yeah, I will do. Different
1: opportunities.
0: Mm. So, what's going to be next for yourself then, Chris? At the moment, you're doing the reframing of disability. Um, obviously, I'm aware you've got some journalism and producer courses coming up um, next week. Um, yeah. Well, whilst we're recording
1: this
0: it's next week
1: um, yeah. what's, what's next what's the year up what, what's so the year? yeah I'm actually very excitingly next week is actually my final week full-time at Media Trust um, because I'm starting uh, a master's um, at the University of Malaya in Kuala Lumpur um, which is a really exciting opportunity which I got through a scheme called the Queen Elizabeth Commonwealth Scholarship um, and it's something I always I always wanted to do. I've always wanted to do a masters, and for quite a while now, I've I've wanted to um, do some research and work into disability and disability activism in developing countries, um, because I'm aware that all of my work so far has been in the UK and has often been through a very Eurocentric lens. Um, and I so I'm really excited to be starting this masters in development studies. So looking at developing countries and not as as you know trying to move away from that trope of these developing countries need to learn from our brilliant britain but actually making it a two-way street of of the things that we're good at we can teach to the world but also the things that different countries are doing better than we are um that they can then sort of teach to us and sort of that mutual exchange of ideas um that helps to develop you know disabled people's activism and advocacy and so on so i'm really looking forward to that obviously it's a, a very weird um very weird moment because i'm in theory, leaving my job and starting this degree on the other side of the world. But of course, all I'm really doing is coming back to the same kitchen table and um, and just joining a different Zoom meeting. Um, but the the really nice thing about it as well is that I, although I won't be working at Media Trust full-time anymore, I will still be a freelancer running those training sessions um, for the media industry on disability. Um, so I'm really looking, I'm really glad that I can stay stay with them because they're an amazing, amazing organization.
0: We would love to hear more about media, trust and mm. learn more about the work they're doing. But you're doing what you're doing at the moment when you go to university, obviously, if there wasn't any pandemic, would you would have you normally been able to have flew out there and be a part Yeah. Yeah. So
1: I'm very hopeful that within a few months we'll have to see how things go. But I'm hopeful that I can that I can eventually be flying out to to KL, uh, which will be an interesting. Um, Interesting balance of, uh, of time differences. I may have may find myself staying up into the early hours of the morning delivering trainings, which is, uh, exciting, but, um, but, uh, a little stre- a little nerve wracking, but I think it's, you know, it's becoming more and more normal that you can one thing that this pandemic has done, and I think will last beyond the end of the pandemic. Uh, hopefully we have such a moment, but I think even after that, that sort of global mobility and the ability to work across the world, um, and you know, deliver deliver sessions in Switzerland, and then pop off to America, and then head off to Korea or whatever uh, is just becoming will will become much more normal. Uh, and I think that's a really exciting thing.
0: And it's also good for like carbon footprint as well. Like keeping our carbon down. We're not all getting trains everywhere now. We're not driving everywhere or flying. So it can also you know help out on projects as well to keep our carbon footprint
1: down yeah definitely and i definitely you know for for organisations like the bbc which do have so, you know so many studios all over some big some smaller um being able to do so much from home or just at least even if you need to go in for say a down the line interview being if you live in nottinghamshire and you can go to nottingham to do your down the line instead of having to come to london that makes things not only so much better for uh, carbon footprint but also so much more accessible for so many people
0: and that's the biggest thing i've realised with the pandemic on how accessible we can now make things and as we've spoken about previously you know all these jobs that were never able to work from home whether or not it was a trust thing with managers or people like no your job can't be done we are now seeing all these jobs that can be and this might become some of the new working in that you only go into the office one day two days yeah because this so much from buildings and
1: and I'm so encouraged by one thing that I've always really hated is this sort of culture of presenteeism where you're more your work is more assessed by how much you're seen to be doing something rather than how much you're actually achieving and one thing I really love about my charity and and working at media Trust is we have such an amazing supportive group of people uh, as our manu- as, as managers and sort of um, getting told you know if you need to finish early if you need to start late if you need to take a long lunch break and go for a long walk um you know if you need to take annual leave at short notice because you're feeling overwhelmed um then please you know let's try and make that possible as much as as much as we can um because you know this is we all we all have times like that but especially in at the moment in this lockdown three um you know it's 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 so easy to to feel overwhelmed and as I, i as i mentioned before i've been just taking fridays off for the for the past uh, few weeks and even just doing a four-day week has made such a difference for me
0: do you find yourself because you are taking fridays off that you are doing a five-day week having a four-day
1: week uh, i think sometimes <laughs> that does end up happening that definitely yesterday i was working later than i'd planned um but i've also i've been trying as much as possible to make sure that my workload can match as well so um another thing which is uh which my boss actually said at the start of january this is her new year's resolution and she's encouraged us all to do the same is to say no more be able to say i don't actually have capacity to do that and recognize that we are all human and have our limits um and we can't just do everything that gets thrown at us and that's you know that's okay
0: today's an exception but i do zoom free day friday so oh
1: that's amazing Oh, well, thank you for making an exception for me, but that's also a really good idea.
0: Anything day job-wise, um, mm. especially on a Friday, I'm like, no, it's, it's a Zoom free day. And because it's also my study day mm. like, until like April, it means I can keep that discipline in place. Obviously, I can do these during my lunch break, I can do the master work, mm. but I am trying to keep those days because otherwise you're just not back to back, back to back, back. Some people might just rock up, it, you know, where me and my brain is, I'll be thinking, like, what's behind me? Like, is there something on show that shouldn't be on show? Do I need to move my chair in? Is the canvas okay? Or what about my jumper? Yeah, i have a spilt some it?" <laughs> because in the office, you don't have to take those sort of things into account. And you've got a load of my friends, they won't even go on camera. And yeah. that can sometimes be difficult if you've never met colleagues, because I'm always trying to look for the green the green square so I don't know who's talking. Someone's like, who's talking now? <laughs> it's like trying to follow it. But if you're in person, it would be easier. But I guess because I'm like introvert and extrovert, I can't talk mm. about both. I live alone. So I love I love the peace. I love the quiet. I love being able to do what I want when I want. I think lockdown would have irritated me if I was with somebody because probably getting in my way a little bit. So I'm quite blessed with that. Where other people's working it would be very different. But then I've also got friends that are living alone, and they're absolutely hating it because they need that face-to-face that human contact.
1: Absolutely. And I, you know, I have friends who would always sort of, we'd always joke that they were sort of the most introverted in the group and they, you know, they'd never come to the pub or whatever, or, or, you know, we'd only see them one every five times that we'd meet up. Um, But even for a lot of those people, (laughs) they are now, um, you know, getting to the, to the point where they're, where they're really feeling the need for that contact. But yeah, I think it does vary. It varies a lot by from person to person, and I'm I've been actually since late November I've been back with my parents, um, up north near Manchester because in London our house was was three and lived with two amazing friends, but both of them, you know, we we just realised that our house wasn't the most conducive place to to stay in lockdown, so everyone everyone sort of headed off to either family or friends uh, or partners, um, and the, you know the idea of of being uh by my by myself for me that would be um impossible so being home with my parents is although i'm not seeing friends is still a nice um nice to have some company at least
0: and how how did the parents find having them back are they enjoying it
1: it's an interesting question. I haven't, I, I wonder, yeah, like Um. it's, it's, it's a strange, it's a strange time because my youngest brother just started university. So he headed off. So my parents had for about two months, they were, they were just the two of them at home, which for the first, bearing in mind that's for the first time in 27 years that they've had no kids at home. So I think that was probably quite weird. Um. I'm sure I get in the way a little bit, but um. I try, I try and stay out of the way and we, you know, I try and cook so so, often, so uh, sometimes, and I think sometimes I, I, it can feel a bit like a, going back to being a child, where your parents just do everything for you, and they cook and clean, and you just sort of laze around. So I do, I try to to participate a little bit, but um, I think I should probably try and do a bit more around the house. Same
0: when I go back to my parents, cause my parents are my bubble, so like mm. I'll go and sleep at their house, and I'll leave the bedroom. And I'll come back and my bed, my bed's made, and I'm like, "Mum, it's fine." Oh no, no, the house, off. the PJ's are refolded back. In <laughs> and, uh, I'll finish my tea, and I've no sooner put my plate down, but <laughs> <laughs> like, oh, okay, there's nothing there, and it's like, "Mum, I'm taking it into the kitchen. It's fine." And she's like, "No, I just don't want mess around the house. I've not spent all day cleaning." "We've got nothing else to do, you guys." Yeah.
1: It's so it's so um, funny how quickly how quickly you go back to that, um, and it's yeah it's also because because also I've not lived I grew up in a small village not too far from Manchester but still sort of far enough that it wasn't like living in the city, um, and I've not lived here since I moved down to the southeast for university and then to London. Um, so I've not been living up here for for, now, for almost 10 years, and it is, it you know, just the whole location and the whole the whole setting, just it feels like stepping But I feel like I should be going to get the school bus in the morning. <laughs> That's how sort of stepping back it feels, but obviously so much has changed in that time as well. It to,
0: totally relates, like when I go back to my parents, mm. I don't ever really walk into the town centre, like very there. Mm. And... When I'm walking in, I'm kind of like, I'm going to get lost. Like, it's my first time, I'm heading to a new place. I'm just kind of like, I remember that bit there? Remember where that was? Oh, well, that shop got closed. When? <laughs> <laughs> I know now. I didn't know that. <laughs> I just need to get out more. Even not when I'm at the house. to stay in or I drive. So before yeah. I go to the go to the McDonald's and that's
1: yeah, so I, I've got my like I've got my Fitbit to try and get like ten thousand steps a day. And I used to when I was working, I found that even if the only walking I did was just to and from the tube station to get to work, and then to and from the you know the office at each, or uh, you know on arrival and then going out for lunch, I would usually get my steps for the day, my ten thousand. Whereas now I've like it really feels like a huge effort just to, to even just go for a short walk. Um,
0: to do that now. Okay. Yeah. When I was at work, obviously I'd be going from like the car park into the office and you've got around the building and then it's from your office back to the car park at the end of the day. Now I average out about maybe 300 a day, 300 steps. Yeah. (laughs) And it's kind of like, yeah. Yeah. I tend to do that look more, but you're going from about a tiny, tiny little bit where before it was like a lot more. Totally, totally.
1: And it's, I, I think the thing that I really need isn't even so much the walking, it's just the fresh air, um, but the cold and the short days makes that really hard. In lockdown one, which was like in spring and then going into summer, I used to love going. It was like my favourite part of the day was going for a walk in the sun and the heat or going for a bike ride. And now it's like it's muddy everywhere. And it's dark and it's cold and there's often snow or ice or something on the on the ground and it just it just it's taken all the fun out of it. But I do I really do need to get out at least once a day, otherwise I just start to go yeah, a bit a bit round the wall.
0: Some of the things that we've said um, between a few of our friends is when we are having phone calls, if it's like a screen meeting, it's being audio only like and joining and getting out and actually going for a walk and doing the call. Because when totally. I do buildings, we, we walk and talk meetings. So those ones are outside. We've locked the area, lap now canal, locked the trees, and we'll walk and talk meeting. And that used to come from quite senior, like a lot of senior managers used to do that as well, and to get that share to get out, to be active, and then it helps you well, will really.
1: you? Yeah, totally. I think it's really important. And, um... Yes, but my my partner lives uh, abroad, so I've not seen him since uh, since early November, and um, I think it's going going back to the theme of the podcast, and um, I think it's when when he. You know, when you're living with a partner, you sort of motivate each other and you get each other. You're like, get up, go, go. We're going for a walk now. Go and make breakfast. Don't lie in bed. And you sort of give each other that motivation. When that person's not there, you lose that a little bit. And you sort of, you have to motivate yourself entirely. And I'm not that kind of person. <laughs> like I'm not. I, I, I very much admire those people who can get up at six in the morning and go for a run before they start work. But that's just not me. And so having I sort of need to give myself that push to go and um, go and do stuff.
0: Whereabouts is your partner living
1: at the moment? He lives in northern Poland, um, so it's yeah, it's a it's a, a been a bit of a challenge. Um, we I lived in China for a year, and he was uh, in Europe at the time. So um, obviously we we he came he visited me for a month, but otherwise we had like six months at a time not seeing each other. And then so when I came back to the UK and he was in Poland, it sort of it sort of felt like next door by comparison. You know, I could just pop over uh, for like a twenty quid flight. just go for a weekend but then the pandemic obviously threw that out so i was during the sort of um september time when when things were all uh, a little bit uh easier and and cases were lower and sort of rules were more lax i was fortunate to be able to get over there for about two months um which was really really amazing um but obviously I don't know how much longer we're going to be waiting before we get back to international travel. It feels like, obviously I was very glad to be able to do it, but it feels like they may have, um, they may have loosened the rules too quickly too soon. And that's what's potentially caused this, this huge up, uh, increase in cases. So I'll have to wait and see, uh, when travels possible again.
0: Hopefully it'll, it'll be so much worth it. A lot of people say it's, it's about the quality it's the quality. It's not the quantity of time.
1: Yeah, I totally agree. And, um, yeah, like, even like, when I would only be able to go like on Friday evening and come back on Monday morning, uh, and literally that quick, just turn around, it would always feel like a proper weekend. And like, I really got something done. Whereas, you know, sort of standard mid-pandemic weekend of just sort of doing basically the same thing you do on a working day, except without checking your emails, um, it just goes so quickly. You're like, oh, it's Monday again. Here we are. That's, that's that. <laughs>
0: And how long have you
1: been together now? Uh, we've been together for six and a half years, which is quite scary. Yeah, so uh, met in Oxford, um, lived together. Didn't live together, but lived Oxford's tiny, so lived very close. Then lived in London together for two years. Um, then I went off to China. He went travelling, and then when I got back from China, he moved to Poland. <laughs> so, um, so been a you know difficult difficult two years in that regard. But also, I think if we can get through this amount of time um living so far apart then then i think i think i think he's a keeper
0: <laughs> i 100 percent agree and i don't i don't know if you're similar to myself but i've always preferred also long distance like, mm. I like the social contact but i don't want them in my face every day like it'd probably irritate me like on the, on the, on the and
1: yeah well when we first moved to London, obviously we were both and um, sort of getting our entry level jobs after university and we we could only afford a studio. We didn't want to live with others. And we wanted, it was our first chance of living together. And we thought, okay, we'll just get a studio flat. And it was a terrible decision because obviously a studio when you're annoyed with each other. There's nowhere to go. There's no you know, there's literally you, you're stuck in the same room, just seething with each other. Whereas actually after that, we realized actually why don't we just get a room in a shared flat um, live with others, but then you know, when we do need a break, one of us can be in the bedroom, one of us can be in the living room or in the kitchen or whatever, like there's more space to spread around um, and sort of have your own space. And I I do, I think that's really, really important. And actually when I was in Poland as well, he was, Poland's in a much better situation than we are. So offices are open and he could go to the office every day to work. I worked from home because obviously I didn't have my British office in Poland. Um, And having that break in the day meant that we were way more excited to do stuff together in the evening. Whereas during the period when we were both stuck at home, working in the office, working in our sort of home office together, um, it sort of ruined, it didn't make the evening feel as exciting to spend time together.
0: No, I totally agree. And I think that's where a lot of couples have either broke up or become stronger. Because yeah. well, people in the faces too much, to start to be more empowered this person 24 or 7. And that's where some, sometimes people have come up with really bad habits and situations. And also it's where some other people have got on, on plastic and it's really, really worked well for them.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I agree. I think it's um, it sort of um, puts the cat among the pigeons when you have to spend time together. And it's really interesting as well hearing from friends like obviously most people have never seen their partners in a professional context and realizing how different people are um, when they're in a professional context compared to how they talk to their colleagues compared to how they are with their friends is often it's often really. Sort of um, discombobulating, I guess. Like it's just not you. Just don't ex- you don't expect to see your friend who you mainly know from the pub, um, or you know someone that you know through purely social events, being sort of professional and <laughs> and sort of calm and collected. It's it's a weird sort of our double lives, I guess.
0: Meeting the pets, meeting the children. We've mm. had people deliver the food whilst they're doing conference calls. Like you'd to see this person come around, this plate come for, and just and then they just carry on and. <laughs> I'll have a burger, tea, please. <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> <laughs> i have a cup of coffee, but what? Or, like, with one of my other colleagues, um, his parents will come in and we'll, we'll bring him coffees and stuff during the day, and he'll just like that to, to his mum dad, like, her two minutes. And I'll be like, hello there, mister. <laughs> <Yeah>.
1: <laughs> and also, yeah, seeing um, people with kids as well, it's like, it's lovely. Um, but, uh, I think at the start of the pandemic, people were really worried and really apologetic, like, oh, sorry, my kids are... Uh, my kids might come and interrupt. I'm really, really sorry about it. And everyone, most, most, there's some annoying people, but most people are like, no, this is a lovely distraction from the day. Let your kid come and chat to us for a bit. Um, and, you know, being very understanding of that. And that's that's quite nice as well. But then you see people who, again, you only ever see in a professional context. And all of a sudden they're a mum or a dad. It's a very different experience of, of very different behavior. My mom's sister,
0: niece. It's so many different titles out one person haven't seen like, as you were saying it's like how I am at work to how I am maybe with my niece or with my goddaughter or my best friend or my parents is very different all the time I think one of my worst times was I was on a call with someone extremely senior and I had to stay out my parents because I cancelled my day off work and I was meant to be off but it was the only time this person could meet me I thought I'll cancel my day off I was meant to be at a wedding so it was kind of do the meeting, head straight to the wedding. Oh my gosh. And my mum knocked on. I was like, Mum, don't disturb me. I says, I'm going to do this and I do this meeting. If you can knock back, don't you tell me when I can't back my house. I was just like, one <laughs> hour, I'm asking you for one hour. Do not come <laughs> You do this meeting. Like, okay, okay, no problem. Okay, do you need a shower? I've left a towel in the room for you. <laughs> I need to know if you want to have a shower. <laughs> if you don't want to have a shower, then I'll just get on with cleaning the bathroom. <laughs>
1: <laughs> was, the, uh, was the person on the other end of the call understanding? Or did they just pretend it hadn't happened?
0: Hopefully did not hear. It was okay, bad. that's good. Find your teeth. It's just like two seconds. <laughs> um, uh, I-, I think they've seen everything though, these days. But this is why I'm glad when I'm at home because I- I- the only disturbance I ever get is the postman, and that's about it. Yeah,
1: yeah. Well, I get, I had to buy these because there is sometimes noise around, and um, I work in the sort of kitchen table, as I said. So quite often people come and get lunch, which is why I'm wearing these very funky telemarketing headphones. Um, that do, They look like, I do look like I'm in a call center, but they're really good for sort of keeping the noise out from the rest of the room. Um, so yeah, so I've, this has been a, a big introduction and I had to buy these because when I was in Poland, there was building work going on outside all the time. And it was literally so loud that you couldn't hear yourself think. So I got these and they're noise canceling and they've got this microphone and that has made a, a huge impact on my quality of life <laughs> as a regular Zoom user.
0: So I'm trialing different ones at the moment to find out what's best I think one of my worst situations was I was doing one of my exams, so thankfully I passed, I was doing my associates in project management mm. and I wrote a sign and I put it on my door to say, I'm in an exam please do not knock, ring the doorbell do not do anything if, if a parcel's arriving, give it next door halfway through my exam ding dong, ding dong bam, 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 bang 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 and all I heard is Okay, are you in? Do you need anything from <laughs> <laughs> <read> sign.
1: <laughs> yeah, it's really, really difficult in situations like that as well. And yeah, doing exams where obviously they, you have to like completely be sat just at your computer, you can't have any interruptions and then life goes on around you.
0: Yeah, I had to give a full tour of my room, like, it was like, we need to see your ceiling to ensure you've got nothing on your ceiling. Camera up, can you show us on the desk, please? Under the desk, I had to do a 360. I had to have a camera behind me so they could see me behind the front. camera on the side. So it was basically everything had to be on camera. And I realized yeah, just... halfway through, and usually they'd stop or someone would come with you. Uh, and they said I could go, but I thought I dare go because if I go and then I come back, and then I'm like, oh, I thought of something to you- do yeah to...
1: yeah <laughs> well it, to... yeah it seems it seems kind of unsustainable really that what they really need to do is just make it an open book exam so that you are allowed to read notes um you know they can still assess you on the merits of what you've written, but i personally, I don't really understand the the obsession with doing exams where you have to remember everything like surely the the assessment should be on your ability to write something critical and and well analyzed rather than your ability to remember all the facts, but really? um yeah.
0: academic and know absolutely everything and get a distinction, but like if I, let's say yourself, if I said to you, right, go out there and write something up for me on how to use Avid, how to use Photoshop, you might be able to go away and do me a distinction piece. But if I had to say, can you edit this photo? You might not have a clue mm. how to do it or be able to do it creatively, and that's what sometimes really gets me at uni. Like all my written elements when i did radio production i scored extremely low on the academic but then i was getting 80s and 90s on anything production based mm. because i'm a visual i'm a doer i'm i can do it that way i just can't get head to paper that's where i struggle but that to that is then where i flourish yeah
1: and it's also it's just not reflective of the professional world like in the professional world you don't have to just like remember something without any help and And then just do it like you can research, you can check something that you've forgotten, you can, you know, ask for, for help on a particular point. Like, and I like my colleagues constantly come to me, for example, to help with spreadsheets, like Microsoft Excel. And I'm like famous in my office for being really good at Excel. 99% of the time that they come to me, I have to go and Google. What they've asked and i just i go and google it find the answer and tell them and then they were like wow chris you're so good at spreadsheets but so much of the time i'm not at all i'm, j- I'm literally just um i'm j- you know i'm good at i know which websites to look at to find the answer and that is in itself a skill but it's not that i'm just an expert on, on excel I've
0: had the same this week so i was creating a load of like mind maps and spreadsheets mm. and for people And I had a load of emails because I did a template for everybody to edit. And everyone was like, wow, that's amazing. Like, that's incredible. Like, how how did you have the time to create this? And I'm just kind of like, templates that I've used before, just repurposing different situations.
1: Yeah, totally, totally.
0: So, where can people go to find out more about yourself and reframing disability and also the media trust so people can find out more?
1: Yeah absolutely so please do if you want to get in touch with me you can find me on LinkedIn or Twitter I'm at chris perk uh, p e r k k um decision I made when I was 19 to make that my avatar I'm not really sure why um and yeah if you want to get into do have a look on the media trust website mediatrust.org because we have an amazing this is just one small piece of what we do we work with loads of charities uh, and work with the media industry particularly trying to get more young people um, from marginalized backgrounds into the media industry so do check us out and if you do want to get in touch it's really easy just info at mediatrust.org uh, and we'll be sure to get back to you pretty quickly we're a really small team so um um so generally we we sort of you'll always get your inquiry answered by the right person but we're also very effective so we do loads of different stuff um, and even if you can't find information on a project that you think is relevant on the website do get in touch because there's loads of um stuff we're interested to do uh resources to promote and so on
0: no that's amazing it's you know i've seen the work you guys do and i think it's incredible i'm really looking forward to myself to go um i've been on some of them before but i'm in the disability um journalism production one and um, next week so are fantastic and it can really shape your industry and it can really shape your business and improve diversity not only in your content as well
1: absolutely thank you so much kay
0: thank you